Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. My co-host is already bursting out laughing. It's because I'm so hilarious. Steph, in today's episode, this is part two. We're going to be talking about capital allocation and I'm going to be interviewing you about some tips and hopefully you can throw the questions back my way once or twice or tips on acquiring and getting good at saving first. So I, I think this is a really important caveat that before you can really embrace and embark on the adventure that is capital allocation and creating technology and becoming technology, you really have to first get good at hoarding. And it's unfortunate, but you have to learn how to save first in order to take risks. This does go completely opposite from what we said against the anti-hoarding in the part one of the episode last Monday. People that make it usually embody and create a union of opposites. It's called a coincidencia oppositorum, the Latin phrase for it. Embracing both ends of the spectrum is uh, an important skill. So it doesn't mean you have to be a hoarder forever and you don't even have to call it that. However, it's really important to build that skill first. I think the average American, if in a crisis, could not pull together $900. That's the stat that gets thrown around. And if you can't pull together or raise $900 very quickly, should you need it, it's vital that we get this information out. So you left college with a nice nest egg. A medium nice nest egg, yes. But a a really, really impressive nest egg based on like about seven years of work experience up to that point. Yep, so started working when I was 15 Mm -hmm. at Outback, hey, every summer and during school as well. So yeah, just kept working. And I remember a cute little memory of my grandmother taking us, my sister and I, into Outback to get our first job. And she had to kind of vouch for us because we weren't old enough. And we just rolled silverware for eight hours a day. That's all we were allowed to do. Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. And we were like, maybe one day we'll be a hostess. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how you get started, right? It's not glamorous, but it's an opportunity that's there, right? It requires a a lot of different uh, trade-offs. You can view them as sacrifices, which I think gets exhausting, or you can view them as important steps and milestones along a much greater journey. And make it fun while you're in it. I always remember... My sister and I having a blast just doing any of the work that no one else wanted to just because one, we didn't know any different. I mean, it was like our first or second job other than, you know, the babysitting and the raking yards and all that. But yeah, just making everything an adventure and finding fun in it, even if, you know, you feel like you're overqualified or you could do so much more and you see people around you and you're like, I could do that job. I think sometimes it's good to just embrace where you're at to then strive to that next level. Yeah, definitely. And I think that along the way too, a lot of the ways that we kept costs down, those are really important strategies to deploy because we we talked earlier about the problems of capital allocation and many of the human problems in our world revolve around the fact that people think that things are scarce and they feel a pressure from others, both real and imagined, to have certain things, to be certain things, or to spend aggressively on cars and where they live and vacations and everything like that. That temptation and that pull, I don't think has ever been higher. We're flooded by media of influencers and media created by people who are uh, showing off wealth. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but when you're flooded with those images, the unconscious desire starts. The unconscious, you know, mimetic desire to get what others have begins. And I think you and I push back against this in a lot of ways where we lived. So we lived very cheaply on the eastern shore of Maryland for a while We managed to live very affordably in Potomac, Maryland, one of the most expensive places in the world. We were in a basement apartment. Two, yeah, two (laughs) Two different basement uh, basement apartments. And 
This is something that I had people straight up look down on me, tell me it was a stupid idea, add up the money that we were wasting on rent, you know, and tell us and just continually like throw that back in our face. And it's what it takes. And it's not pleasant. It sucks. You're going to lose friends over it. But were they friends in the first place if they care about you living in a basement apartment? Probably not. Or they get upset because you can't go on every trip, every drinking adventure, yeah. everything that they're doing. Yeah. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, glad we didn't do all that because... We were able to get here. Definitely. If I think too about the first couple opportunities I had to save large chunks of money, I'm very, very grateful that I embraced those. I've had kind of like this uh, oscillation where for a long time I've worked for myself where you would get a large check or you would be able to save up a large amount of money over a deployment. You know, in the case of Iraq, I was on active duty for about I don't know, on and off for like 18, 19 months or something like that. And I think I ended up saving about 95% of all the income throughout the time. And I was talking with Adam when we were recording some experimental episodes of The Journey about this. And he was just like shocked at how little I made during that time. So in Iraq, uh, I think I was able to save somewhere like 30, 40K, maybe uh, a bit more. And that's across 18 months. That's that was about 95, about 95% of my income doing the safest job in the world. Not, not <laughs> sarcasm really. a little bit. Yeah, that's crazy. But it's possible, right? I did it again in Egypt and it felt great, but I had to make some sacrifices basically. And I didn't get to do everything that I wanted to do. That part of it sucked, but it was throughout that time. And it was through the isolation and ostracization that I went through because I wasn't doing what everybody else did that gave me a precious gift. And that was the gift of being alone, because when I was alone, I got to read, research and really ask myself, you know, what was I going to do next? I had saved up this money, but the money wasn't doing me any good. And I had already explored enough in the stock market to fully grasp the idea that I had no informational advantage there. That was not a game where I was going to be able to have fun and allocate capital well. The really important lesson was I was spending and investing and experimenting with my own money. And when you're experimenting with your own money, as opposed to other people's money, OPM, you learn much faster uh, because things are obviously much more real. The stakes are higher. Your incentives to achieve are higher. It's difficult, but if you can just sit in that uncertainty and uh, keep going, great things happen. Great things that you couldn't predict. Got it. So you said you were going to ask me questions. I'm on the edge of my seat wondering what you're going to ask me. Yes. So I'm curious about how you're transitioning from being an expert capitalist, dare I say, in terms of acquiring capital to deploying it. Because over the last couple of months, I was complimenting you when we were driving the other day because I was just in awe of how much you've just instantly transitioned to deployment or you know, to, to capital allocation and being open to that. And that's really exciting. So I want to hear about what's your thought process like and how did you transition from one mindset to another mindset and mode of actions? I mean, I would say it definitely took a while. You know, it took a while because I think a lot of it does depend on your history and your family and how you grew up and what you saw all around you. And, you know, growing up, I did see scarcity and I did see like, okay, if you get money, hold on to it, don't spend it. I mean, everyone in my family was very frugal. And so when you met me, I was able to save up almost all my money because I rarely spent it. I didn't get nice clothes. I didn't get a nice car. I mean, I just saved as much as I could. And I think that stuck with me pretty much. Well, I always invested a little bit along the way in things that were safer, though, felt safe to me. I mean, you know, I had stocks that I was investing in, index funds. And the first semi-risky 
investment that I had wasn't until 2014, investing in Bitcoin. That was when I think the mindset shift first started happening. That was when we were in the basement apartment in DC. I remember telling you about this and saying I wanted to invest, I think it was $900 into four of them. And you were like, yeah, if you think it's a good idea, like, I don't know anything about it, but sure. And you encouraged me. And I think that was the first piece of like a mental mind shift of, okay, let's try it out. And then as we continued to get more into all the projects we were working on, and I kept kind of helping along the way, it just started opening my eyes to, oh, if I put a little money here, a little money into this project Chad's working on, a little bit here. And it just started opening my eyes to how much bigger of an impact it could have in those areas rather than traditional places like, you know, index funds and stuff like that, which those also did well for me. I'm so glad I did that. And I still do that as a piece of my capital allocation strategy. However, I started saying, okay, well, maybe 20% of whatever I make is going to go into this, this, and this, and being okay if I lose it all, that's all right. But I mean, that hasn't happened yet because I think I'm still pretty strategic about where I choose things. But yeah, so now I think I just started realizing that investing money in different areas that I believed in and different projects and, you know, putting funds into the mission, see where it's at now. It just makes you start to realize as you start putting your money in different sections, like, oh man, look what happened here when I did that. The rate of return is huge. That's, yeah, that's really cool. And I think that we're trapped into thinking that the rate of return for an investment is, should be, you know, like 5%, 8%, 10%. It can, but it can also be 10,000. It can also be 100,000, your initial investment. If you are acting on a local level and if you're willing to go through the idea maze that we talked about, uh, which takes years and- Okay, so this is really exciting. So if we were to make this episode absolutely priceless and evergreen and offer someone advice that they would not receive anywhere else, it's number one, get good at capital allocation. And unfortunately, you have to start by practicing acquiring the resources and holding them. Don't even worry about the return. Just worry about acquiring them yourself and getting them in your control. That is an incredible skill. It's really hard and it's a cultural challenge. But if we move past that, It gets into really exciting territory. And here's the challenge for everyone listening. In trading and finance, there's something called a negative carry trade. In that trade, you're typically shorting or going long on a particular security or derivative. And however, though, you're paying for that option and you're paying a quite large sum of money in order to have an option to buy or sell a security at a later date. The exciting part about this is in the financial crisis, there were many individuals who saw a fraudulent system and they bet against it. This was a negative carry trade. Many of us have seen The Big Short, which is an awesome movie. I highly recommend that to better understand the protagonists that, in a sense, saved the financial system, as well as those that are working to keep the financial system honest, which we need both. So if we look at negative carry trades, these are trades where you have to pay out of pocket every single month for an uncertain future outcome. However, you can structure the trade so that the outcome is 1,000x or 100,000x. That's the opportunity. Now, is that future going to happen? It's uncertain. It's a lot like building a business. Building a business is a negative carry trade. So back to the financial crisis, the people that made out the best, the Nassim Taleb's of the world, the Michael Berry's, and you just go on down the list, they all suffered ridicule for five years, seven years, 10 years while they were holding these negative carry trades. Around them, the traders were driving progressively better and better cars. They were moving to swankier neighborhoods. 
And in the case of Nassim, he tells about his brother-in-law basically looking down on him because he didn't have as affluent a lifestyle as he did. However, he knew that his brother-in-law was basically a sucker with his investments and that eventually they were going to crash. And Nassim was holding a short position through his hedge fund on who he viewed to be suckers who were trying to get something for nothing and screw over the majority of hardworking Americans. This is really exciting because negative carry trades offer us the possibility to right social wrongs. They offer us the power to stand up to systems and say, this is wrong. And I have information that suggests otherwise, and I'm going to put my own skin in the game. I'm going to have to lose for many years, but eventually I might be able to get an outsized return. It's the same thing with a business. It's the same when you're joining a startup or when you're joining any type of professional organization where the future is unknown. When you go inside an organization, oftentimes people think, okay, this is my job. I can only progress up to this level. But if you're in a savvy organization and you demonstrate a track record of expanding and multiplying capital, they're going to give you more and more capital. The biggest secret going on inside Silicon Valley right now is how much people are compensated for their capital allocation skills. Mm -hmm. So many parents encourage their children or their college students to become doctors and lawyers and all, all the rest still. They encourage them to get into technology. None of them really, I think, are aware of the fact that what are these executives making and why are they making so much money inside these companies? It's because they're priceless. It's because they're irreplaceable. And it's because each year they get X amount of dollars and are expected at the end of the year to show with proof that they multiplied it. And if they do, they get a bigger budget next year. And if you do that, you'll get a bigger budget next year, whether it's starting out from the bottom and you're getting a bigger budget from Steph for experiments, <laughs> or if it's getting a bigger budget from the best investors in the world, you have to start somewhere. So just start building that track record today and really embrace the idea that these are the meta skills that matter and if you're going to push back against a sick culture, you need to be armed with the best skills and best philosophies. And I hope that both these episodes have really moved in that direction. And I hope you, the listener, feels that we are working really, really hard to focus in on the signal of what could create just complete abundance for you and the people you care about. That's the point of this podcast. And if you listen to it daily, we are forever grateful for that. We appreciate it so much. And if it's helped you in any way, let us know. Hit us up on the socials. Uh, we're always excited to hear from people. Email us. And yeah, we, we're so excited and honored to have you here. Also, as Chad mentioned last Monday, we're not financial advisors. We are doing this podcast for entertainment. Anytime we talk about financial advice, it's not really advice. It's just ideas. Yeah. And that's uh, the culture we're living in. So let's uh, expand the uh, caveat there that you should not take our investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only and blah, 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 LLC, blah, blah, <laughs> LLC, something, something, something. Yeah. So you get the point. The biggest thing to remember with all of this is if you do take a risk, remember who took the risk. It was you. And you have to take agency, extreme ownership, whatever you want to call it. But losing money hurts. And when we lose money, sometimes there's an incentive to hurt others. Don't do that. Get through it however you can. Go through the pain and uh, get to a place where you're making money or where you make the negative carry trades that get you laughed at for a couple of years, but allow you to have the last laugh. We will see you all next week. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, 
who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.